So, Gidon, before we carry on with your story, there's a particular memory you told me about living in Carlo Vivari after the war. Yes. We returned to Carlo Vivari, and I started going to school. And the Soviet soldiers, young and older, officers and plain ordinary soldiers, were all over the place. And whenever they saw Germans walking around and they saw that they had a watch, they would stop them and take it away from them because they loved watches and they had never had a watch because the Soviet Union was not a very rich country. And sometimes they were like little kids trading watches between them. I'll give you two of mine, you give me this one. I'll take one for one. That's an amazing memory, Gidon. Okay, so now we're going to talk about how you came to be in Brooklyn, New York. It's a little bit complicated, isn't it? Yes, it is, as most things in life are. So here's what happened. I met Gidon Lev, and nothing was ever the same again. Hi, this is Julie Gray, and these are the true adventures of Gidon Lev. My mother's grandmother's sister lived in Brooklyn, New York. Her great aunt, I suppose you would say. Flora was interested in finding any relatives that were still alive. Living with her and taking care of her was her niece, Leonie, who was employed by an agency that was looking for people who had survived the war. And through this organization, my great-aunt located my mother and me. Doris and Gidon were located by a cousin named Leonie and Flora, a great-aunt in Brooklyn. Leonie must have been extremely determined, not just to find any surviving family members, but also to scale the mountain of paperwork, requirements, and deadlines required to bring Doris and Gidon to Brooklyn. Once they had been found, Gidon remembered receiving monthly care packages from Leonie and Flora carefully wrapped, heavy with canned sardines, and, Guidon recalled, M&Ms. Finally, two and a half years after liberation, Guidon and Doris got the okay in 1948 to emigrate to the United States. Flora didn't know it yet, but her sister Rosa, Doris's grandmother, had been transported to Terezin in July of 1942. Three months later, she was sent to Treblinka and the gas chambers. In 1948, my mother and I got on a train to France and spent three days in Paris. I don't remember much of that time except eating bananas. I had not ever before seen or tasted one and I ate them until I got sick. Then we got on the SS America, which was a beautiful boat. I never had been on such a ship, of course. They even had a swimming pool. I learned how to swim even though my mother was totally against it. She was afraid of water and swimming because of an incident years before. I remember I had to sneak out of our cabin into the swimming pool and I taught myself to swim without her finding out. 
When I got to America and passed the Statue of Liberty, I was so disappointed, Giton said. It was much smaller than I thought it would be. While Giton had one experience, his mother naturally had another. It wasn't hard for me to imagine how frightening it must have been for Doris to disembark in Brooklyn in 1948, a widow, suffering from the shock and grief of her experience, with the knowledge that her family was murdered, and toting a 13-year-old at her side, her son, looking to her for cues and guidance. It wasn't easy to emigrate from the only place she'd ever called home. In the book, After Such Knowledge, Memory, History, and the Legacy of the Holocaust, Eva Hoffman writes, Immigration is an enormous psychic upheaval under any circumstances. It involves great wholesale losses of one's familiar landscapes, friends, professional affiliations, but also of those less palpable but salient substances that constitute, to a large extent, one's psychic home, of language, a webwork of cultural habits, ties with the past, perhaps even ties with the dead. Less palpable but salient substances, like belonging, familiarity, cultural habits. Guidon was too young to take his mother's state of mind into account, but it strikes me as interesting that he didn't write anything even in retrospect, about Doris's frame of mind during this time, though he did concede at least one important point. Of course, to her credit, my mother did look after my basic physical needs, especially in Terezin, the concentration camp, though even there, there were long periods when she was ill and in the sick room, and I cannot recall who looked after me. I think for the most part, I must have looked after myself. Neither Guidon nor his mother spoke English when they arrived in America. Well, that's not entirely true. Guidon knew how to sing My Bonnie Lies Over the Ocean. Bring back, bring back, oh, bring back my bunny to me, to me. Bring back, bring back, oh, bring back my bunny to me, to me. A year after we visited Prague, Guidon and I took another trip together, this time to Brooklyn. Naturally, Guidon was amazed by how different everything was. Seven decades had passed. It was like time travel. This was nothing like the Brooklyn Guidon immigrated to in 1948. Nothing. This was not here. That was not there. As we stood outside an ordinary-looking apartment building on East 21st Street in Flatbush, the building that Guidon and his mother first lived in, Guidon launched into My Bonnie Lies Over the Ocean to demonstrate for me, once again, that this was the limit of his English language at the time. No one paid any mind to Guidon's singing. The streets were busy around us, and people went about their day without a passing glance. There was the usual CVS, several pizza joints, used clothing stores, and the aroma of spicy Caribbean food. Guidon pointed up to the third floor of a building and told me that he and his mother stayed right there in a small room next to the kitchen. It must have been cramped in the flat. It must have smelled like close spaces and cooking. It must have sounded like the shouts and beeps and honks from outside. It must have been noisy inside, too. Flora, Guidon told me, especially liked to watch boxing on television. 
Televised boxing was all the rage in the 1940s. It was cheap and easy to produce. I could imagine the tinny sound of the crowd roaring in the background. I could imagine that Europe must have seemed for Doris and Guidon like another distant world. Guidon and I stayed at the beautiful Brooklyn brownstone of our hosts, cousins of Guidon's late wife, Susan. I could see the family resemblance among Susan's grown children and her cousins. The family regarded Guidon with great affection. He was, after all, a connection to Susan, who died too young. But it was more than that. There was genuine love here, and history. This family was very much like Guidon's family in Israel, or maybe it's vice versa. They were articulate, artistic, musical. We enjoyed a family concert around the piano. After everyone went to bed, I read aloud to Guidon about the past few days of events that I had both written and added and edited from his journals. School was already already out for the year year because because it was was summertime. So I would go to a lot of movies. I saw Batman and Superman. I could not understand what was going on. I did not understand the language. This is America? People can fly? Go through walls? Finally, I spoke to Leonie and asked, Was is das? Hold on. Stop right there, Gidon said. I don't think I would have asked her in German. I reminded Gidon that I was reading aloud from his own work. He frowned. No, it must have been German. I didn't speak English yet, he said. Keep reading. I spent a lot of afternoons. afternoons going to Prospect Park to watch the kids play. They threw this crazy-looking ball. American football, I think. None of these games I knew how to play. But one day, I noticed some kids playing what Americans call soccer. So I stood behind the goal, and every time there was a goal or they missed the goal, I would run, get the ball, and kick it back to them, because this is the game I knew. Finally, after an hour or two, one of the kids, an older kid, their counselor, saw me and asked me to join them. When I thought about that skinny kid standing there hoping someone would ask him to join the game, I could have wept. My reaction surprised Gidon a little bit. It pleased him, too. He was a sad and lonely kid who was standing there, hoping to be included when Guidon allowed himself to really think about it. He was so accustomed to telling his story as a series of events, often very detailed, but usually lacking in any emotion other than a kind of stolid enthusiasm or matter-of-fact displeasure. I was very lonely, he admitted. It turned out that the kids who invited him to join them were in the Hashomer Hatzair Socialist Zionist Jewish Youth Group. It wasn't the same group Gidon had been involved with in Carlo Vivari, but still, Gidon was overjoyed to have made new friends. They invited me to their club the next Friday, and I went there for Oneg Shabbat and folk dancing. I was so happy. We talked about Israel. Soon we will have a country and kibbutz and everything, they said. It was really a revolutionary state for me to be once again with kids and people who were Americans but were speaking about maybe going to Israel and what is happening there. I also learned things about being Jewish that I had not known. 
Even though I had been a Jew in a concentration camp, I had very little knowledge about what it is to be Jewish. To learn English, Gidon went to night school. He was the youngest kid in the class. It was mostly for adults. In the fall of 1948, he was put in sixth grade. Once again, as was the case in Carlo Vivari in 1945, Gidon was older than the other kids. He had a lot of catching up to do, and now he was trying to catch up in English. Gidon must have adapted very quickly. After only half the school year, he was put in the seventh grade and later eighth grade. But he struggled socially. I felt very strange, very isolated. I did not have friends because I couldn't speak English. In school, I was sort of an oddball. There were parties. They never invited me. I just remember the kid said, oh, we went with this girl or with that girl. You know, like teenagers do. Yes, like teenagers do. Oh, what a lonely boy. At least Gidon could sometimes hang around with cousin Leone's 18-year-old son, Ted, who was both very tall and very fat by Gidon's description. He had, quote, a model airplane hobby and took Gidon out to fly his planes in Prospect Park. Some planes flew and never came back, Gidon explained. Flora went crazy about it. How can you spend so much money on these little motors and lose them? But, Gidon went on, sometimes he kept them on a wire and they just flew around in a circle. Gidon told me that Ted shared a room with his mother, Leone, and that their room was crammed with balsa wood model airplanes hanging from the ceiling, decorating every wall. Both Gidon and Doris thought this so strange, such an expensive hobby, and stranger still that Leone shared the room with Ted. I pointed out to Gidon that the room he and his mother stayed in was probably Leone's room before, and that she'd moved into her son's room to make space for them. This had never occurred to Gidon. Suddenly he felt chagrined. But that's how memory works, doesn't it? Only as good as our awareness at the time. Trapped in amber until something pierces it. After being in Brooklyn for just one year, in 1949, Doris decided to leave for Toronto, Canada, to marry Yus, the man with whom she had developed a relationship after the war while they were in Carlo Vivari. Guidon experienced yet another dramatic change in a life marked by upheaval. With no relatives in America, Yus had applied to immigrate to Canada, where he had a good friend from before the war, Frank Cohn. Frank was married to Guidon's father's first cousin, Paula. Small world, but then Carlo Vivari was a small town. On his immigration application, Yus said that he was Frank's brother. And although their surnames were different, Cone with a C versus Cone with a K, the Canadian immigration authorities bought it, and Yus moved in with his brother and began to work at a textile factory. In their new ad hoc post-war family, Yus, Doris, and Guidon stayed with Frank and his wife, Paula, for several weeks before they rented their own place on College Street in downtown Toronto, above a kosher butcher shop. Doris began to work at a millinery factory. Guidon started eighth grade at Grace Street Public School, and although he was already a studious apprentice of adjusting to new circumstances, the move was difficult for him. You have to remember, I was 14 years old. Once again, my heart fell to my toes. Here I was in a club in Brooklyn making friends and just beginning to feel at home. 
and we were leaving again. I was hoping that for once I would have a home, a family, and even a father. Little did I know that these two, my mother and Yuse, two deeply emotionally injured souls, would have a very hard time working or talking things out between them. At that time, five to ten years after the war, survivors were not encouraged to speak about what we had endured and we didn't know how to process what had happened to us, to our families, to millions of Jews. As a child, I even lacked the language to express what had happened and how to deal with it. There was a great deal of tension and arguing in our home, which for me was terrible. An awkward adolescent, Gidon was in his second new country in the space of 18 months, living with a stepfather with whom his mother's silence, moods, and anger made bonding difficult. His new family was struggling to make ends meet, and Gidon worked from four to six every afternoon after school, five days a week, and all day on Saturdays, in addition to doing the many school activities that he threw himself into. He was eager to get out of the house. Gidon lined out that last sentence and scrawled on the side of the page, quote, He did manage to save up enough money from his work after one year and bought himself a Raleigh bicycle, of which he was very proud. He was eager to spend as little time as possible in the house, and the bicycle helped him to do so, end quote. So I had this beautiful blue bicycle with a light and a bell and a basket, and I loved it. I got an after-school job at Siemens Fish and Food Store, making $8 a week, stocking the shelves, cleaning the store, and stacking the frozen fish for smoking. After a year or so working for Mr. Seaman, when a shelf fell down on me, he gave me a raise to $10. I would also do deliveries, especially on Saturdays, and earn a bit more from tips. Later, I went to Central Technical High School, and I took part in the school course and was active in sports, especially in training for the 100-yard dash and football. At Central Tech, we learned various trades, such as auto mechanics, carpentry, electronics, plumbing, and so forth. Together with math, history, literature, chemistry, even algebra, though the level was not always very high and it was possible to learn something, especially when from time to time we had a good teacher. And in this, I was quite lucky. I had a wonderful literature teacher. I remember his name to this day, Wally London. He had been a professional football player with the Toronto Argonauts, who got hurt and started teaching. He made us understand, and to some extent even love, poetry. We had to learn 200 lines by heart in order to pass his class, from one of Shakespeare's plays. I chose the speech by Anthony from Julius Caesar, and can recall part of it to this very day. Gidon put down his spoon and dramatically leaned back in his chair. We were eating soft-boiled eggs in the kitchen. Friends. Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. The noble Brutus has told you. 
I don't remember anymore. I asked Gidon whether he chose this speech or whether it was assigned. He explained that there were a few speeches the students could choose from. So why this one? I imagined young Gidon relating to a powerful statesman, swathed in a toga, bedecked with a crown of olive leaves, gesturing dramatically, being powerful, being heard. Gidon interrupted my train of thought. It demonstrates how words can change people's perceptions of events. Was I trying to eke something out of Gidon that wasn't there? I didn't know the entire speech myself, only the first line. I realized, though, and not for the first time, that there's a performative aspect to Gidon. He's a ham. That's why he liked the speech and why he likes it still. He loved attention. Gidon amended that last sentence, quote, he loved attention and also to be different, end quote. Only a couple of months after arriving in Toronto, Gidon sought out the meeting place of the Jewish Zionist youth group he'd gotten involved with in Brooklyn, Hashomer Hatzair. At the time, there were fully 30 different streams of Zionist youth groups with an array of socio-political ideologies, right, left, and center, that spanned the various Jewish denominations, from Orthodox, Conservative, and Reform, to interfaith, pluralistic, and humanist. Over time, incidentally, these youth groups shifted to political parties that would shape Israel and give the modern state many of its most prominent leaders. Hashomer Hatzair, the Young Guardians, was most decidedly on the far political left and was the movement that was most energetically committed to creating a revival of a Jewish nation founded on the egalitarian principles of socialism. For the members of Hashomer Hatzair, being in America or Canada was only a way station before their true destination, Israel. Gidon had found his tribe, and the movement found in Gidon an enthusiastic participant. Every week after work, I attended Hashomer Hatzair meetings. We had educational programs on topics connected to Jewish history, the Zionist movement, Plato's Republic, communism, capitalism, socialism, and Israel. There were also lots of cultural activities, lots of singing, sometimes through the entire night, and lots of Israeli folk dancing. Much, or rather all of my free time, after work, I would spend at our club. After a year or so, I was given the responsibility of being in charge of maintenance and heating the meeting place. And this was very demanding, so I spent even less time at home. Gidon was living two lives, one in a home that he desperately wanted to leave, and one is a valued member of a movement that promised him that, with hard work and determination, he could go to sunnier climes and be an essential part of a family that needed him. At home, things continued to deteriorate. One day, I had a terrible fight with my mother and decided to not finish my last year of high school so that I could go to work and pay my mother rent for the room that I was living in. In school, they were a bit shocked because I was doing well and had only four months to the end of the year and a diploma. But I just could not stand it any longer, 
and wanted to be as free as I could of my dependence on my mother. It wasn't that Gidon didn't think about the future when he made the rash decision to drop out of high school. He absolutely was thinking ahead, in a straight line that ended in Israel. Hashomer Atzair was committed to Israel, and specifically to a kibbutz. I completely adopted that commitment. For me, it was unshakable. It became crystal clear to me that I would live on a kibbutz in Israel. My first job after stopping school was with a dental company, delivering false teeth to dentists all around Toronto, and I really got to know the city and a lot of the dentists all over town. Then, one day, I gently backed into a Lincoln Continental, a very fancy vehicle. And that was the end of that job. Then, my second job was putting up prefabricated garages, once again all over the city. This was truly a hard job for two main reasons. To get to the site of the new garage, I used public transportation, and often I traveled for an hour or more to get there. Secondly, this was in the winter and it was very cold. So cold, in fact, that at times nailing on the roofing, if I missed and hit my fingers, I didn't even feel it because they were numb. This willingness to do anything was classic Gidon. But this image of a slight Czech boy with an accent, no father and few friends, living in a lonely home, riding the bus and pounding nails in the freezing cold, made my heart hurt. If you've enjoyed this episode, subscribe and follow for more. And don't forget to leave a review. If you'd like to read The True Adventures, it is available everywhere you buy books online. To learn more about Gidon Lev, go to www.thetrueadventures.com and be sure to follow Gidon on social media. Thanks to our sound designers, Andrew Macht and Victoria Sampson. Music composed by Nigel Groom and Adi Goldstein. Toda Rabah Eliran for being the voice of young Gidon. And a very special thank you to Eva Hoffman. <laughs>